All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is the intro for episode 59. I have Jason Lingren with me. We are going to be talking about the world we live in called Earth and the planets, and we will cover a few other topics. Um, We are going to challenge things like the orbital model and basically what is this place we live. And we are going to demonstrate in really a couple ways that really can't – anyone who looks at the data um, and decides to actually study it to see if there's a there there will discover that it's really not a saleable data. Um, On the other hand, people who say I've been told this other thing my whole life so that's what's true will probably have a problem with – some of the things we're going to say here, but what it comes down to is, are you a person that's going to challenge information or are you a person that's going to regurgitate what a textbook told you? Um, It's a bit like walking into a room with a hundred people and having a hundred people agree on the wrong thing and basically go along with them just because a hundred people have agreed on it. uh, When any one of those hundred people could have stopped taking the time to challenge and discover whether the information they were spreading was actually valid information. Anyhow, um, I want to cover a couple things before we jump into the episode with Jason. First off, the next episode, episode 60, is again going to cover member questions from membership of Crow777radio.com. So all the members listening, uh, submit your questions. When you listen to the full version of this episode while logged in, there's a comment section below that clip that you were listening to. Submit your questions there. Also, in the next episode, I'm hoping to get Matt Landman back. You might remember that Matt Landman came on the show to talk about chemtrails. Interesting enough, I had another gentleman named Patrick Roddy, or Roddy maybe it is, I've forgotten, Um, who's also a big activist in the chemtrail community. These two guys have found each other, apparently. But Matt Landman has started to put together a film called Frankenskies, and last night he mailed me a preview of that movie, and so I wanted to have him back. And uh, it's kind of apropos. Today is the first day in a long time we haven't had rain. We woke up being told it was going to be sunny blue skies into the 70s, and we are getting the living daylights chemtrailed out of us. There is no portion of the sky from north to right above my head to south to east to west that is not being crisscrossed right now with trails left behind by jet airplanes. All right, to get back to the episode, this is a very interesting episode. I've put off doing it for a long time, but the kind of argument about what this world is and where we live and things about the solar system and whether or not there's seven new Earth-like planets around some supposed star called Trappist-1, the, the arguments have heated up and up and up. As far as I can tell, I see two kinds of people coming into the argument. I say this over and over. The first people just are regurgitating what they've been told in school, what they read in a book somewhere, what some magazine told them, what television told them. The second group are challenging what's going on and saying, hey man, something here is not right. I would ask before we jump into the episode, which two of these groups do you fit into? Because you're going to need to understand that what we lay down here is not for you to believe, not for you to accept, not for you to regurgitate. It is for you to challenge. If you look at what we are laying down, then take it apart, examine it, then, and only then, can you determine whether there is validity in the information being laid down. So there it is, man. Let's jump into episode 59 with Jason Lindgren. And again, members, submit your questions under the full version of this clip when logged in, and we will cover those questions, Jason and I, in episode 60. There it is, man. Cheers.
All right, man. Welcome to the Crow Triple Seven podcast, and this is episode uh, fifty-nine, I believe. And Jason Lingren is with me again, and we're going to be talking about planets in general, or the idea of planets, uh, which is an idea, by the way, that I do not accept. Um, the description or the meaning of the current current word world. <laughs> man, I'm having a tough day. Let me start over here. I do not accept the current definition of the word planet in the way that we use it. In a way, we have all been taught to think and live in a fantasy-based reality. This has been achieved through alchemy, scientism, math magic, and flat-out lies that have been pushed through many sources, into schools, into media. This includes music, movies, entertainment. I would remind everyone that the word entertainment can be broken down by its constituent parts to mean to go in, enter, to hold, tain, and meant has always mean mind, have meant mind. So, I mean, it basically means to go in and hold your mind. Um, I would further state, learning is not memorization and regurgitation, which so many of us, that's what we took from school, mostly. Um, in my view, learning is challenging and determining if something is worth accepting or if it's usable in a meaningful, reality-based way. In my view, detecting fraud is simply often just training your mind back to common sense. If you can do this and apply common sense, it will often allow you to identify a target that needs challenging. Once you have challenged a target, you can then walk away either having thrown it out of your life as nonsense or accept it or temporarily accept it as something possibly usable. And again, so many of us have come through school simply reading a textbook, memorizing what the textbook told us, and then accepting that as true. This is not learning in my view. The question, it, what it really comes down to is will you be a person who regurgitates what you've been told or will you challenge information and use your own abilities to determine if there's any value in the information you've been given? As we've said in past episodes, it's a bit like being drugged to the crossroads. When you get to the crossroads, you have to make a decision, in fact, which means, as an allegory, every time you're presented with information, you have been taken to the crossroads. At that point, you are faced with a decision you have to make and is so aptly pointed out in an old Rush song, if you decide not to choose, you still have made a choice. If you are taken to the crossroads, you do in fact have to make a choice. And this is a big part of the alchemical mind game that goes on in this world. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. And if we didn't push any buttons with the last one, pretty sure we're going to on this one. Yeah, you know, it's you've got to talk about things that matter. That's all there is to it. And in the last episode, I kind of felt like we were very fair, like we weren't purposely kicking anyone in the nuts, like we were trying to take a very balanced approach to an obvious problem that can be looked up and demonstrated. And yet, let's take a minute to talk about the numbers. Did you see the numbers or at least the, the publicly visible numbers on the last episode? I did. I saw the 322. Yeah, so uh, I posted the clip on the Masonic USA, or I guess I should say United States, and uh, on average, I get roughly 20 thumbs down. Sometimes if people are really in a mood, you can get somewhere up around 30 or 40, maybe even close to 50 in some cases, but I would estimate my average is generally in the 20-ish range. All of a sudden, there were 322 thumbs down. I had to wait a couple days to get the stats from 
YouTube on the upload day. And what I'm about to explain here has gone on many times on the day I upload a new episode. For the Masonic clip, my my positive number of gained subscribers was negative 33. This has happened at least four times on days that I have uploaded clips. But this is also not just a, a, a net loss of 33 subs, according to them, the number 33 being of interest here. But then there is how many subs I lost on top of, the, top of that. So what they're saying is my positive sub gain is negative 33, which again has happened a number of times on episode days. And then on top of that, 30 or 40 other subs have been lost. It has gotten to the point now where my subscriber base on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, is losing somewhere between, according to YouTube, 500 and 800 subscribers on average per month. Good grief. I mean, that's just, well, it's, it's unlikely. I mean, while we, I know we push buttons out here, people do want to hear the information we're putting out. So is there chicanery going on? I think so. Well, what's funny is over the life of my YouTube site, which I believe was, I don't remember exactly, was it October? Maybe it was October of 2013 that I put it up. I'd already been shooting through the telescope for at least a year, I think. Um, they claim in their um, stats that I have lost close to 30,000 subs over the life of my YouTube channel. That's the claim anyhow. Yeah, that seems unlikely. I mean, there's more, I mean, just in the amount of videos that pop up for suggestions and I see just how many people have watched those videos people want in the information i mean that's just the bottom line so uh, if you're not being messed with I, i'd be really really surprised yeah it's just it's it's a bit much you know when it gets to be 322 thumbs down i mean come <laughs> on man um the only other time this has happened and we'll address it in this episode is when i posted uh, evidence that showed the pluto photographs from nasa were fraud um and we're going to address planets in general in this episode. We're going to try to thread a needle. I've said for a long time that the world we live on is misdescribed, purposely misdescribed. I've known this for a long, long time, but it came to a head for me when I finally saw how many people were trying to demonstrate that we can see too far. So I went out and I did my own little experiment and found, in fact, we can see too far. This doesn't tell me what the world at large looks like. It doesn't allow me to draw a map. It doesn't allow me to do a lot of things. But the question in this episode is going to become, for the people listening, are you going to be a person who simply forms an opinion on what you've been told your whole life? Or are you going to take what's being laid down here and go out and challenge it? If you hear something in this episode, or if you do your own investigation and you challenge it, at least you have attempted to truly learn what is real and what is not. Um, so anyhow, we got one heck of a list, Jason. I'll kick it right over to you, and I will preface the list. Um, we're going to go through the publicly available timeline. Again, I will say history is likely a lie agreed upon, but this is the only foundational basis we have to talk about, which is why we're using it once again, and it's all you, Jason. All right, so there's two things we're going to go into. One is how the solar system works, and, and in turn, that would be the rest of the universe. And secondly, what the actual planet we're living on is. And, you know, of course, these things are, are very hotly debated right now. I mean, why are we doing a show like this? We're doing this because this is a huge issue right now, and it's it's interesting just the, the, the psychological aspect of it all. It's People are fighting over this big time, and it's causing a lot of... Uh, 
I don't know. I think it's a divide and conquer thing that's going on right now with, with a lot of the folks out there. But anyway, let's get into this. Well, well, let me, let me add something real quick before you start, Jason. And I think one good reason to do this show um, is because I just recorded an episode of Anthony Bourdain, who's a proud member of the CNN family right now. Mr. Bourdain took his film crew supposedly to Antarctica. So many people who are challenging right now, trying to determine where it is we exist, what this world is, what the true description of this place we are is, understand that Antarctica is key. It's guarded by, I don't know, I'm guessing 50 or 52 nations. I've forgotten the number, um, but that coastline is guarded by all these treaty member nations. Um, the, the harder people looked at Antarctica, they began to realize that it's probably key in understanding more about this place we live. To get back to the point, Mr. Bourdain goes in there with a film crew and on numerous occasions laments at how many people no longer respect science and how nobody will take science seriously. So if Mr. Bourdain is ever listening, I'll give you a correction and an edification right here. Most people understand that their car and their refrigerator were built by science and they appreciate these things. What people are fed up with is scientism, is the lies, is the constant obfuscating of facts, is the magical math that is brought to bear and these physicists who make things up out of thin air and then try to convince the rest of us this is our reality. Well, Mr. Bourdain, it's not that we are fed up with science. It's that we are fed up with lies. And in this episode, we're going to lay out on the table what anyone listening wants to challenge, can challenge, and determine for themselves if there is any there there. Anyhow, sorry for jumping in on you, but I wanted to include that. No, and it's very important. And another thing that's important to point out is that there's a difference between a scientific law and theory. And a lot of people take things that are still labeled clearly as theories as laws, and it's just not so. It's it. That's a hell of a point. Look at gravity. Gravity fits this bill. Gravity is a thing you can't smell, taste, sense. You There's no way in the world that you can demonstrate whether gravity is real, and it is a theory. You know, not too long ago, they announced they found gravity waves. Well, really, if you found gravity waves, well, then that theory should be becoming a law here shortly, right? It's not what we see. There are a number of people during the course of the research I did for this episode, there are a number of people back through history, well back through the 1800s, saying gravity is nonsense. The reason the apple falls from the tree is because it's heavier than the air that it's falling through, which again pulls us back to a common sense thing. So for the average person listening, which way do we go here? Here we've been drugged to the crossroads again. We got to make a decision. Is gravity real? Should I believe gravity because I've been told it's real my whole, whole life? Or should I look at what this other person is saying? If you take a brick and you drop it into an aquarium, it's going to fall to the bottom because the brick is denser than the water it's falling through. Um, is there any there there? And I would suggest to people that there is, in fact, a there there. The question becomes, what are you going to do? You're going to regurgitate what you've been told, or are you going to examine it and, and try to make heads or tail in some meaningful way out of it? Anyhow, I'm kind of wandering off track. Let, <laughs> let me kick it back over to you so you can get back into the, the gist of things here. All right. So the earliest models of our solar system go back to ancient Greece in the 300 BC range. The word planet comes from the Greek word planetes, which means wanderer. The planets were wandering stars. Aristarchus of Samos, an astronomer and mathematician, proposed a heliocentric model, and the philosopher and scientist Aristotle proposed the geocentric. Of course, 
for anyone that just doesn't know what those words mean, heliocentric means a sun-centered solar system, and geocentric means that the Earth would have been the center of the solar system. There is a suggestion of an even earlier heliocentric model being proposed by a Pythagorean named Philo... Hmm, how do you pronounce it? Philolus? Philolus, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, In the 5th century BC. This seems to be uh, of religion origin, however, because of the belief that the sun was the hearth of the universe, or the central fire, as it was called. The problem with anything regarding anything in this far back in antiquity, however, is that there's no books that have survived from any of this period, or at least not very much, to actually prove anything. It's all secondhand information that was written down later. So, in a way, here we are, drugged to the crossroads once again, where we're going to be forced to make a decision. And I I would also preface that, you know, we kind of demonstrated that the roots of masonry had a lot to do with Pythagoras. Um, They have a lot to do with Kabbalah. But my point here is you're being given a couple choices. You got one guy saying, hey, man, the sun's at the center of everything. You got another guy saying, hey, man, the earth's at the center of everything. So... What, in fact, happened to most of us is we went through school and we were told over and over and over the sun is at the center of the solar system. Everything is spinning around these things, and that's what the world, for the most part, accepts as correct now. So as we go through this, we're going to point out reasons that this should be challenged. Absolutely. So the geocentric theories took the forefront for many centuries, simply put, because that is what observation suggested people wanted to be able to predict the motions of the heavens so they were looking at all this stuff and like well how does this work we can see that all this movement is going on so we have claudius ptolemy who lived from approximately 100 to 170 a.d uh, putting forth the notion of some serious astronomical tables while they weren't perfect they actually lasted in use for hundreds of years because they got it pretty close and i'm pretty sure from the way i understood it he used circular motions for the orbits that he was trying to guess Instead of ellipses, I think is is what you're, yeah, instead of what you're pointing out here. Now, I I will insert here that I'm still doing research on the idea that our historical timeline is incorrect, being divided roughly around what's called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, having modern history being literally rewritten from that point forward to what we accept as correct now, and everything that came before uh, a real effort to be made to sweep it away. So I would point out on the tail of this bullet point he, that Jason just addressed, 100 to 170 AD, if there is any correctness to the idea I just explained, it would move those dates almost a thousand years closer to us, and that would also suggest that the names and people were fabricated or characters of some sort. And I know that's a little off topic, but I think it's important to keep these things in mind because the days of simply reading something memorizing it, and then regurgitating it as knowledge need to go away. We need to challenge these things. And the people who are shown to be silly, well, that will fall by the wayside. But if there is a there there, and enough of us do this, we may walk away knowing a bit more than we did at the at the out, outset. So anyhow, go ahead, Jason. And it's not entirely off topic, because if they're doing some kind of 1984 nonsense to us where they're changing things as time goes on, and that's what people are memorizing... By the time you do this for decades upon decades, the uh, entire view of history is so skewed that you don't know what is what. So you just stated what I imply all the time, and while I can't say I'm behind the idea 100%, I'm getting to be about as close as I can to 
state that I'm almost certain there is a there there um, in this modern construct we find ourselves in. It is so rare when we ever get 100% of anything we can accept in our minds. The point being um, that Animal Farm is exactly what we were talking about here. And anyone wants to go back and read that book in a couple hours, we'll see that the animals over four years were having their realities changed because they couldn't quite remember what happened four years ago. And that's a lot of what we see in the modern news and in our modern existence. Anyhow, to you, Jason. So the big arguments of how the solar system was actually arranged and what may have been orbiting what came down to the belief in the four traditional elements of Earth, air, fire, and water. And this also ties back into alchemy, of course. <clears throat> the notion that the heavens were actually made of a fifth element called quintessence was often called into the argument to explain things away. The, the notion was that everything besides fire and air fell to the center of the universe, which is just the older version of what gravity is trying to explain now. So there's so much here we could talk about. And again, we've got these older alchemical ideas, which are very simplified and much more in tune with nature than modern things like chemistry and other modern sciences uh, that we all rely on so much these days. I will state, during uh, the research for at least two of the past episodes, I began reading about experiments which proved there was, in fact, what is called ether, which could relate to what you just called quintessence. Um, but according to some of the research I did, Einstein was brought onto the world stage because the idea that there was a spinning solar system, the spinning global orbital model brought to us by such places as NASA, had been proven false by a couple of people called Mickelson and Morley in roughly 1887. The claim here, and again, everyone needs to go out and challenge this to find out if there is a there there. I'm not telling you to believe it. I'm telling you what is out there and what I have personally challenged myself and drawn my own conclusions from. <clears throat> Apparently, the claim is that Einstein was brought on the stage to undo the experiment that Mickle and Morris, Mor excuse me, Mickelson and Morley had done. And here's a rough breakdown of what that experiment was. They took a beam of light or a ray of light and they split it. They sent one side of the light in the direction the earth had just spun from and the other one in the direction the earth was going. The reasoning, and this is a very rough outline. Anyone can look this up and make corrections if something I say here is not spot on. I'm pulling it from memory. The idea here was that if the earth was spinning, there should have been a difference in the timing of the light shot in these two directions due to the motion of the earth from the point of view of the observers. What Einstein did was stepped on the stage, basically just did a dictate that there was no ether, I guess. Basically, there is that I can locate. There is no reason or example or experiment done by Einstein to show why there is no ether when there were previous experiments that show there is an ether. Einstein simply said what he said and dismissed the idea of ether. This brings his theory of relativity, and I know there's probably going to be a lot of physicists, again, who come in to correct me, so I'm giving you a rough overview. In Einstein's theory of relativity, and I don't remember whether it's the regular relativity or general, he basically comes up with the idea that light has a constant speed and it matters not where the observer is measuring it from, and this undoes the Mickelson-Morley experiment, so that's what you need to know here. 
Yeah, the, basically the idea is the speed of light is the cap of the universe. Nothing can go faster than that. That's the highest uh, wavelength of energy in the physical universe. So by saying this, basically what you did by putting a speed limit on it means that nothing can travel faster than light and therefore the rest of the physical universe has to be molded around this concept. Right. And also the idea that it's not slower, it's not faster, it's this um, really undid the experiment. You see, the experiment is accepted by a lot of people as proving factually um, that we are on a stationary plane um, along with other evidences. Now, whether or not you choose to accept Einstein, I think it comes down to whether you want to regurgitate what you were told in school or you want to go look at the Michelson-Morley experiment and then look at Einstein's theories of relativity and try to determine for yourself. I would suggest that you also look up the experiments that tried and many say successfully proved there was an ether. The idea here is that a light wave requires a medium to go through. So if there is no ether, what in the heck is the light traveling through? It's a bit like going down to the beach to view a wave in the ocean, but there's no water. If there's no water, there's no wave. And this is also at the crux of the argument being made here, where Mickelson and Morley show that there is an ether and that it is required for a wave of light to travel through. Einstein, as far as I can tell, simply dismisses it, giving no reason or rhyme how, and then producing mathematics that support the idea that these guys are wrong and the theory of relativity showing that speed is a con or light has a constant speed regardless of where it's being observed from and then the rest of more modern physics are built off of the general and special theories of relativity and notice what i just said the word theory again Right. And it goes on and on. You know, we get the same players over and over. Newton is going to play a big role in this. Um, and so what you see is that if, in fact, any of these people like Tycho Brahe, Kepler, Galileo, um, Newton, any of these people are playing insider baseball to prove a theory for the whole world to believe in, which is false, it's foundational to everything else that follows. So I ask again, here in the new century, in the early part of the new century, do we challenge these things or do we just simply accept them because they've been written in every textbook that we've ever seen? For my part, I think we need to challenge them. And as we get into this episode, I think we're going to provide pretty good reasons that demonstrate why. Right. Definitely. So the current mainstream solar system models are, of course, heliocentric. And to sum it all up without going through a whole bunch of... Uh, astronomy history. It, it's a, it all comes from the works of Nicholas Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, and Galileo. And the approach that Kepler used has lasted until this day uh, by being combined with the work of Sir Isaac Newton and classical physics. And those those pretty much together helped get the models so that we the astronomers could predict the uh, motion of the, war, of the heavens. Right. And as people go in and challenge this, um, I'll make another kind of warning and a preface. So many people that have challenged these ideas um, on whether we're actually living in a stationary world, whether the solar system model is correct, which, again, I reject, they bring religion into it. And I think it's a real shame because some of their brilliant deductions, some of their what I consider to be pretty hard to prove wrong truths that come out of that are then wrapped into religion. My problem with that is that instantly excludes a huge portion of humanity. 
quite often religion has a lot to do with where you were born, what religion you end up accepting and adopting as the religion you will follow. So as an example, a Christian here in the West wrapping all this research up in his religious beliefs or her religious beliefs has probably removed people from the Middle East or India or parts of Asia from the conversation because they can no longer to relate to what's being said. And so while we can look up and challenge these things, I would again warn people, can you look at proofs and examples being laid down that you can you know, kind of challenge and remove the religious interpretations that were put on them? It's a big challenge. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. All right, so that's the solar system and basically how the universe may or may not work. But besides the structure of that, there's also the nature of the planet we live on and the nature of what other heavenly bodies may be. So the mainstream notion for centuries is, of course, that we live on a fairly rough sphere. Then we have the alternative plane model, which would include such things as flat Earth theory. So this is something that has been slowly picking up steam over the last decade. And while there are several different models and reasons for existing as it would, for how that whole conceptual notion would work, the general acceptance between all the various alternative theories is that we have been and are continuing to be lied to by government and scientific institutions of the world. And this allows for a much greater amount of cognitive dissonance, and it makes the general population much easier to control. So the following points we're going to get into regarding the Earth not being the traditional sphere model, these aren't in any particular order, as always. This is just stuff that Crow and I called together that are basically points for you to consider about what is the true nature of our reality. Right. And again, we've said this in past episodes. If you do not understand where you exist accurately, how can you understand where you can go from that point? And I think that's a logical deduction anyone can make. But I'm just going to throw out a little bit of information here just because half the time when you read a textbook, you're told these overarching ideas, but the finite details of what those ideas actually mean are never really addressed. But the first thing I'm going to use is the FAA so many people have looked this up. The, F the FAA uses the Target Generation Facility, or TGF, which drives most of the air traffic control at the FAA. The model is used to train pilots and air traffic controllers, yet here's the catch. It states it is using a stationary plane or flat earth model to accurately simulate a real-world airplane in the real world. Anyone can look this up, and this is not the only example of this. We'll get into gyroscopes later, but I'm going to throw out some numbers here, and again, that is the FAA Target Generation Facility, or FAA-TGF. Go look it up. Anyone can see that the model they are training all air traffic controllers with, or most, and training pilots with, uses a flat Earth, stationary Earth model to get the most realistic simulation of what they call reality they can get. Not kidding. Go look it up. Anyhow, the idea of the solar system model, the orbital solar system model that I reject, here's a few numbers from it. According to this model, the Earth is traveling at roughly 67,062 miles per hour around the sun. And by the way, it is also spinning at the same time. And I didn't write down those numbers, but if I remember correctly, it's spinning at faster than the speed of sound at the same time that it's doing that. We are told the sun is traveling at half a million miles per hour around the galaxy or 500,000 miles per hour. We are further told 
that the galaxy within which the sun and earth are traveling is traveling and there is a a variance on these numbers, but it is traveling at something like 300,000 to 1,400,000 miles an hour through space, okay? So if we're to logically look at these numbers and the orbital model we've been handed, this is what it means. The Earth is moving at nearly 80 times the speed of a rifle, rifle bullet while spinning faster than the speed of sound. The sun is speeding at more than 500 times the speed of a rifle bullet, and the galaxy that holds the Earth and Sun is speeding through space at nearly a thousand times the speed of a rifle bullet. So I would ask anyone listening, are these common sense ideas to accept? Is this something you should read in a book and say, yep, this is my new reality, or should you challenge this in some way, shape, or form? For my money, I couldn't accept it. It was beyond the pale of the wildest sci-fi imagination I could ever put together in my own mind. So I challenged it. And on the tale of challenging it, as I have said so many times on this podcast, I do not accept the NASA orbital model of our solar system. Anyhow, Jason, go ahead. Let's keep pushing forward. Yeah, so the, so the next point we're going to discuss is something we've been over before, in fact, and it's that there don't seem to be any real pictures of Earth from space. And I mean pulled way back where you can see the whole damn thing. And this also goes along with the admittance that all or nearly all photos of space are artist renderings or composite images. And anytime you hear these, these NASA folks or whomever happens to be discussing things, they always say, oh, well, this is a composite image. And I'm not a photographic expert, and maybe there's no, no way to do this, but I've never understood how you can't just stick a camera out and hit click. Well, we're told that's what they did. We were told in 1972 Apollo 16 did that. We were told Apollo 17 did that. And I'm here to tell you that they are all provable fraud. I'll use a couple examples here. But first off, I would ask, if I can show that the 2002 NASA blue marble image is fraud, do we really even need to talk about 1972 or Apollo 17 or 16 for that matter? I would suggest that we don't. But let me go through a little bit of the data. And I will state, I will preface before I say any of this about the supposed Earth images from space, that every one of them is fraud, every one of them is an artist rendering, and it is provable, provable. And if I am correct, that tells you something about the place we live, and it tells you something damn important. Anyhow, in 2002, the NASA Blue Marble image was used as a wallpaper for the new iPhone released in 2007. Here we see the full spectrum programming. Here we see the idea that there is actually a real image of Earth from space being inserted into the minds of millions of people all at once. Anyhow, NASA admits this is a composite image. And what that means is it's not a snapshot of anything. It's an artist's rendering. Many people have shown the duplicated clouds in this construct. I invite anyone to go on to YouTube right now, look up the 2002 NASA blue marble image and look at how many people have showed that somebody simply used Photoshop to clone clouds because they're identical in numerous places. It is also known that the artist who created this image, his name is Simmons. And this is what he stated. He took data from NASA and created an image of what he thought Earth should look like. 
there really is no argument here that the 2002 NASA blue marble image is an artist's rendering, an artist's construct, and it is not a snapshot of anything that exists in reality, in our world, in our universe, anywhere. To keep going, and I will cover two other examples. I'll cover one from Apollo 16 and one from Apollo 17, which we were told they pointed a camera out the window and shot the world while they were in space, both times they were lying. The supposed 1972 Apollo 16 image of Earth from space was taken on April 16, 1972, we are told, using a handheld Hasselblad camera, we are told. This image is found to be a construct when Photoshop users got some of the original versions of this image posted on the NASA website and did what I did to the Pluto images, which we will talk about later. They simply jacked the levels up in Photoshop, and you could see all the editing, the cropping, artifacts, all of it, which proved the image was a construct. This is only one example of many examples that prove the 1972 Apollo 16 image is in fact a construct and not a snapshot of anything. Moving on. Apollo 17 supposedly took images of Earth. To cut to the chase, Apollo 17 images have been compared to other supposed Earth from space shots and, get this, the government graphical mapping data that shows the land masses and sizes are faked and do not match. To draw a better picture for people, what it basically means is they took the Apollo 17 image where you're looking at a globe that you're as told as the world and another image of the world from all these other sources I just mentioned is sized exactly so that the circumference of the supposed globe matches spot on and guess what? The landmass sizes are vastly different and varied proving that they are falsified, fraudulent, and a construct, but it gets better. Since when they took the images in the Apollo 17 example, and if I remember correctly, I hope I get this right, there were like three images or something like this taken back to back to back. Um, they gave the time that they shot these images. What some smart users on YouTube, I believe, I might not have that right. What a smart individual somewhere did was realize that if he was given the time the snapshots were taken, he could roll back the clock to see if the portion of the Earth being pictured in these images was lit. And guess what? He found that it was not correct. He found that working from the time supplied by NASA that these supposed images from space were took, that the wrong part of the Earth had been lit. So we can do this. What I have done with these three examples, the 2002 blue marble, the 1972 Apollo 16 and Apollo 17 images, there is not another space-based image in existence that I am aware of that we cannot do this or something very akin to this to show the fraudulent natures. I will go on the record as saying that in my view, there has never been a snapshot of anything ever taken from space. And that's my point of view, man. So anyhow, Jason. Well, one of the ways they could do to shut us all up is if they're say the Chinese or whomever, Japanese, they're sending probes to the moon. Why don't they just point the camera up in the sky towards where the Earth is in the sky at the moment? Take a picture. <laughs> Good point. I mean, it reminds me of that iconic moon shot where they're showing the moon's horizon and the Earth rising in the background. And people took the focal lengths of the supposed Hasselblad cameras and demonstrated that uh, the Earth should appear four times larger than the moon does when you're looking at it from Earth and that the size of the Earth in that picture was incorrect. 
Of course, there was all this nonsense and meaningless verbiage released by NASA to try to undo that damage. But what it comes down to is we don't have any authenticatable images from space of anything, to including the surface of the moon. So anyhow, um, oh, and I would further add, as we get in, we'll probably bring up things like the Hubble Space Telescope. In past episodes of this podcast, we have tried to the best of our ability to demonstrate that the Hubble Space Telescope does not exist, nor, in my view, does any machine exist in space. But it is likely that almost every image attributed to the Hubble Space Telescope is taken from an aircraft called SOFIA. And I have also since added to that idea that any seriously well-positioned ground-based telescope could take images of supposed space and then process them in a way which has been shown already that would look identical to what we are shown as Hubble images. Anyhow, I tracked off a bit there, Jason. Go ahead. You know, just out of sheer curiosity, and again, I'm no photographic expert, but if the moon is supposed to be one-sixth the size of the Earth and you're standing on the surface of the moon looking at the Earth, shouldn't it be at a factor of six bigger in the sky relative to what you would see on Earth looking at the moon? That's what tipped people off. I think I said it should have been four times bigger, but now that you bring it up, I'm wondering if my memory is faulty. Uh, I don't remember whether it's one-sixth. I thought it was one-fourth. But the point you're making is yes. If you stand on Earth and look at the moon, when you were, if you could stand on the moon to look at Earth, it should be at least four times bigger. I don't know if the number is actually six. I would have to look it up again. But that's what tipped people off to the fraudulent nature of the initial image I just mentioned. Yeah, and I'm just using common sense. And again, there may be a billion other factors I'm not aware of, but I'm just throwing that out there. But all that aside, the images that get shown to us from NASA of all the various bodies in our solar system, they of course have inconsistencies just like the earth photos and it seems that fakery as usual abounds and we have your pluto work just being a more recent example of this chicanery so let's go through your clips that you pointed out and that got you uh super heavy mainstream media attack and uh troll attacks from the gaming community and and all that yeah so when we were told that we were going by Pluto, all kinds of things happened. It, it was a bit like when uh, Juno, the supposed Juno probe, was put on uh, the Google homepage for its search engine. And the word goy could clearly be seen making fun of all no, no non-Jewish people. This was around the time that this was going on, maybe a little earlier with Pluto. I made a series of clips, and to date, it was the largest attack on my YouTube channel that has ever happened. The first series of clips I, I put up meant used the same methods as I just talked about to show that the Pluto imagery we were being handed was fraudulent, that it was just edited images of nothing, not a snapshot of anything, just renderings. Um, you should bear in mind that when I put the first, I think the planet that I, or the clip that I put up was called Pluto the Planet, the cartoon was created in 1930. Um, it was either that one or a clip called Pluto the Planet Cartoon, Welcome to Disneyland. One of those two clips, I don't remember which, was picked up by Gizmodo. On the tail of that, the Daily Mail in the UK picked it up, and not long after that, Newsweek was contacting me for interviews. In the meantime, the largest trolling attack to date uh, hit my YouTube channel, and it went into the thousands. I had never had a clip where the thumb downs even approached the thumbs up, yet this time what happened was quickly the thumbs down remained within 10 
thumbs up or down of thumbs up. And this went on. I haven't checked recently. Last time I checked a few months ago, it was still going on. So here are the clips for anyone who wants to go look at my work. And it's important for anyone who gives a damn and cares to look at the Photoshop method that I used. It is a good way to detect fakery in supposed images. Um, I used the levels tool in Photoshop to prove and not arguably prove, prove that the Pluto images that were being pushed out to the public were fraudulently edited constructs. The first clip that I'm going to mention here was uploaded on August 27. It is called Pluto the Planet cartoon was created in 1930. The second clip was uploaded July 20th, 2015. It is called Crow 777 Moonshots versus Designed NASA Pluto Image. The third clip, it was uploaded on July 17, 2015. It is titled Pluto the Planet Cartoon, Welcome to Disneyland. And the last one I will mention here was uploaded on July 7th, 2015, and it is titled Crow Images versus NASA Images. Pluto is only at Disneyland. And one of these clips I point out is they're claiming they have a probe headed towards Pluto, and they're giving us these ridiculous pixelated images and telling us they're only 7 million miles away. So I whipped out some of my uh, Jupiter images where we are told we're 400 to 500 million miles away and demonstrate what my no-budget little 8-inch telescope in my backyard can do compared to a similarly sized camera in space, we are told, that is only 7 million miles away and my images kick their ass. So I would urge anyone to go back and look at that stuff. It really does begin to show that everything we have been handed from space is simply a lie. Hmm. Yeah, and you've proved that over and over and over again. Let's just be blunt about that. So the next thing we want to get into is space travel seems to be fake. And we've been here a lot, haven't we, Crow? We did over 12 hours on space yeah, fraud. And a lot. Yeah, we, we don't need to rehash all that here. It's If you guys want to hear that, go back and listen to the to the six episodes we did just on that alone. And we proved over and over and over again massive inconsistencies that are found from all the way from the 1950s up to the modern era. So we have NASA, the Russians, all these different rovers on the moon they're sending out, space stations that there's been several of over the years. We see obvious blue-green screen shot effects, you know, that, that aren't quite right, um, noticeably flimsy sets that astronauts are supposed to be on, things like that. It's just it, – it is what it is, man. It's Something's not right. If a thing exists in reality, you can look at it. You can take it apart. You can know things about it. I've used this analogy before. If, say, Ford or Chevrolet releases a truck, we can look at it. We can say this truck comes in these colors. It has this many horsepower. It has this many doors. We can know things about a thing that exists in reality. And if we apply this analogy to what NASA provides, we will instantly understand that what we're being handed is nonsense. Right now, we are told China has a rover on the moon. If that's correct, why the hell don't we have nonstop HD, cutting-edge, best cinematography going for our age, views of the moon and everything above the moon and the sky that can be seen from the moon and the earth that can be seen from the moon? And I'll tell you why. Because almost immediately on landing, they started to report failure because they didn't want to try to cover the lie. Um, that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is, is because they are not on the moon. Um, as we jump in here, I would urge people to take common sense and force it 
force common sense to be applied to what the space agencies are handing us. There is not a single video that I am aware of of supposed astronauts on the International Space Station that can't be ripped apart in some fashion. If these things are true, I would ask a simple question. I just demonstrated to you that all the images of Earth from space are fraud. Those images are in nearly every high school textbook in the United States. I have seen them. So if those are fraudulent images and those images made it into textbooks, what does that tell you? What it tells me is you better challenge every damn thing these people are telling us. But anyhow, Jason, let's go on down the road here. So the next point I would like to bring up, and maybe you can shed some light on this because this is just something I came up with out of my own head, is space probes are being sent out to other planets and calculations are being made for gravitational slingshots. Massively complex calculations, I would assume. But my big question is, how could they possibly actually know these figures accurately, despite how well one can do math and science? Well, this is a part of the math magic that I referred to earlier. As I was doing the research for this episode, one of the authors I was reading demonstrated how math can be used to not only deceive, but to flat out fraudulently tell a tale. The example was used of a glass of water half full and half empty. And then he showed the mathematical equation that could be applied to show that, in fact, the cup was empty. This would need to be read for people to understand the complete demonstration. But what it comes down to is that we have all this math that very few people understand. We're being told it's doing all these things. But, you know, it's it's about like the comet shot that I took apart where they fraudulently told the world they landed on the Rosetta Comet, the Rosetta Philae mission. And we began to break down the numbers. And it got to the point where even their math magic wouldn't hold water for simple reasons. Like we're told it's going 84,000 miles an hour and they're going to land this thing on it. And yet for a one-way radio communication to make it from supposed Earth to the supposed probe took 25 minutes, which means two-way communication is the better part of an hour. So when you begin to add all this common sense up against what you're being told, you very quickly see there's a problem then. And of course, the images were no different than any other space-based thing we've been shown. I think we got one or two at the end of the day. There were problems with everyone I looked at, and it was shown to be the fraud that it is. At the end of the day, I would state for the record, you get enough smart people in a room, and they can use or develop math to describe just about anything, even if it has no existence in reality. So there's that. Yeah, so make of that as you will, folks. Next one up is one that's always being discussed by a lot of folks out there, and that there's no curvature to be seen. The math just doesn't seem to be adding up, and the bottom line is objects seem to be visible at distances they should not be. And I'm not an expert in this. Crow, you probably know a heck of a lot more about this than I do, so go right ahead. All right, so I had been watching this for years, people saying we can see way too far. I finally went out and did my own test over a lake, and it's true. We can see too far. It's all there is to it. But I'm going to throw down some things people can look up and and look at. Now, in understanding you can see too far, it doesn't give you a new map of the world. It doesn't even really give you a good description of anything. But what it does do is tells you that the curvature model we have been handed is, in fact, a lie. And it's not an arguable lie. Two types of people are going to hear this statement from me. And the first ones are going to say, you're insane because our whole life we've been told this is true. So it's true. The second group will have challenged it and said, wait a minute, something's not right here. So let me just 
explain what the calculation we are handed is. The calculation for curvature is eight inches per mile square. So eight inches in the first mile and the second, the fall off to curvature should be 32 in inches and in the third, 72 inches and so on. To blow this out to little longer distances so people can understand before I cover the next two points, at 10 miles, looking at a, an object 10 miles distance, it should be 66 feet below the horizon. At 20 miles, 266 feet. At 30 miles, 600 feet. Seeing the theme of sixes here? At 40 miles, 1,066 feet. Now get this. At 50 miles, 1,666 feet. And lastly, at 100 miles, the fall off over the horizon should be a lot of sixes here, 6,666 feet, or basically roughly 1.26 miles. Now, Crow, as you're going through this, I do have one question that, as I'm visualizing this, how much would elevation between the two points that you'd be looking at come into a, uh, a play? Well, I mean, if I understand your question, Jason, we could, and I'm going to bring this up again, think about something like the Panama Canal, which is roughly 100 miles long. If we apply the mainstream calculation for determining the curvature of the Earth, we would find something like the center, and I'm pulling this roughly because I don't remember exactly, but at the center of the Panama Canal, the elevation of the curvature of water should be roughly 6,666 feet, something like that, and I'm ballparking it here. I'm using very rough numbers, saying that it's roughly 100 miles long, that kind of thing, using the table that I just gave you for how many feet. Um, is that what you're asking me? Yeah, and I'm kind of just doing a rough visualization in my mind, like if I was standing on Mount Everest, how much of a difference would that make looking down and out that, of the distance I could see, as opposed to if the entire, like you're looking out over, say, a flat desert? Yeah, it makes a huge difference. You make a good point. And I'm only doing it as an objective, like as you're right. going through this, I'm picturing this in my mind. I was like, okay, so I'm thinking three-dimensionally here. How much of, of these things would factor in? So I'm about to tell you about a guy who laid down things anyone can go out and investigate um, because they're official things that are listed uh, in official places. Um, so it's not just this guy claiming he did this, you know, like if I went out to a lake and said, hey, man, look, I'm looking across this many miles and I can see too far. Um, there's nothing more official than a Google map that I provide and my claim that I was doing this. For myself, what I did is good enough for me. I never presented it to the world. Don't need to. A lot of people have done this. But the point is, the higher your elevation, the further you should be able to see. But to determine any kind of a curvature or how far you should be able to see, you would have to subtract the distance of your elevation. And that will I'll get into that in a second because I'm going to mention a guy who used lighthouses, which was a pretty ingenious way to do this because the distance you can see at a lighthouse is officially registered. And it has to be because people's lives depend on being able to see a lighthouse back in the day. Um, it could be the difference between a shipwreck and not understanding where that lighthouse is. So listing how far that lighthouse could be seen across the ocean is a pretty critical thing to get right. Anyhow, one of the people you're here talked about a lot um, in flat earth circles, in infinite plane circles, and who people who simply understand that the orbital model we've been handed is nonsense is a guy named Samuel Robotham. 
Many people will recognize this name because back in the 1800s, I think it was later mid 1800s, he did a rowboat test on a canal supposedly where basically he took a telescope or some lens device, put it just above the surface of the water, put a guy in a rowboat with a flag, if I remember correctly, and that guy went way too far away. He should no longer have been able to see him. The problem with things like this is you're taking a man's word for it. There's real no objective way to find out whether this happened. But you see, in this case, many people have replicated what he did here. But the one thing that Robotham did that really made a difference for me was he used lighthouses. The reason using lighthouses is important is because you're not taking anyone's word for anything. The height of a, a lighthouse, the distance the light can be seen, usually gauged by in fair weather conditions or the minimum distance the light can be seen, are on official public record. These numbers can't be screwed with. If you have a ship out at sea in rough seas, praying to God they can find a shoreline, knowing that they should be able to see a lighthouse at a certain distance is critical. These are not numbers that are going to get fudged around, and if they do, you're probably going to see a lot more uh, shipping accidents. Anyhow, Robotham apparently takes 25 lighthouses, and he uses data provided by the official sources for nautical and maritime sea use that shows that 25 of these lighthouses, you can see the light further than you should be able to. He does everything right. He subtracts the elevation of the light above the water, brings everything down to sea level, calculates the heights of ships, does all this stuff. Well, a guy comes along named Shodwald, and he's put in place to debunk and defame what Robotham has done. The problem is, is that Shodwald goes back through the data, assuming that Robotham got the data incorrect, and he finds out that Robotham had all the data and all the math was inassailable. It was spot on. So get this. The debunker finally says, and I read the official account, and I read it in more than one place, Shodwald, the debunker, finally says, there is no problem with the math, there is no problem with the calculations, there is no problems with the numbers provided, because we could look them up in official sources, but clearly, Robotham cherry-picked these 25 lighthouses. That is a huge tell. If you can produce one lighthouse in this world that you can see further than you should, it tells you unequivocally that the curvature model is incorrect. Just one, this man provided 25. I would invite anyone to go out and look at this. Unfortunately, some of the lighthouses are no longer in existence, but the data on them is, and some of the lighthouses still are in existence. When you come to things like this, it doesn't give you a new map of the world. It doesn't show you what the place we live looks like, but what it does absolutely tell you is that the curvature model we have been handed is false. And that's a fact. So anyone who wants to go out and challenge it, I would urge you to do so. Again, the man's name was Samuel Robotham. He lived from 1816 to 1884. And the guy who tried to debunk him, his name was Shodwald. That is spelled S-C-A-D-E-W-A-L-D. So there's that. I mean, what do you think here, Jason? That the man must have been very dedicated to his ideals because think about how long it would have taken him with the primitive technology of the 1800s to do the trip and measurements of 25 lighthouses. Well, you see, part of it uh, is relieved because uh, I will 
here, let me see if I've got it written down. Uh, one of the sources that Robotham cited is a publication called Lighthouses of the World, which was written by Alexander G. Findlay in 1861. So the work is already done because this is an official publication and it, it lists the official numbers of how tall these lighthouses are, where they are, how far the light can be seen, all the important nautical information about a lighthouse. For the average person who's never experienced a lighthouse, I'm in Rhode Island where there are crap loads of lighthouses. They're all going out of business these days. There are still some working, um, but GPS and other things are beginning to replace that. But the thing about a lighthouse is, is it's a big damn deal. There is a person that lives not too far from where I'm living that built a house with a lighthouse on it on a cliff. And his whole thing was he wanted to get registered with the government and permitted to, to start the lighthouse. And you should see this thing he built. It's a house with a lighthouse on it, and he could never get permission to turn the thing on. You can look up what goes into giving permissions and building a lighthouse and what has to happen once it's lit. It has to always be lit. It has to always meet all these standards because basically when a lighthouse is important, the lives of people at sea are at stake. And that's not fear porn. If you have bad weather, and believe me, I've been on ships and boats my whole life, um, having been coming to Rhode Island. Uh, if you're, if you cannot no longer see the shore and the weather is rough, I can't understate how much, how critically important things like lighthouses are. So basically, Lighthouses of the World by Alexander G. Finley listed many of these things from official sources, and a few of them he confirmed, you know, I guess firsthand. Goodness. Well, I'd say the man was thorough, that's for sure. Well, it's, you know, the, these are things that are not really debunkable, and that's why I included the debunker here, because the numbers are what the numbers are. These are government sources that are providing a safety device for shipping lanes, so they're not going to be fudging the numbers here, and it kind of proves they're not fudging the numbers when the numbers they're providing show that the curvature model doesn't work. Well, it's all, when it comes down to the money, that's where you can start thinking the things might have a lot more validity and accuracy. Yeah, I mean, the money the money always tells the tale, does it not? Well, it is the law of the sea, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's where the current flows, clearly. <laughs> so we're at, almost at the top of the hour here. How much more would you like to go through on this? Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to get into a whole new set of topics here. So is there anything you'd like to add before we break the first hour off? I'll just uh, let everyone know that we do have a lot – of other bullet points to go through in regards to inconsistencies with the place in which we live. And then we're going to discuss the uh, recent Trappist-1 treasures that have been in the news a lot lately. Right. And to, to elaborate so people understand, um, we're being told by our beloved space agencies that there's a new sun out there or a sun that maybe they've known about or they claim they've known about called Trappist-1. And they're claiming there are seven new planets around this. And we're going to take this apart. Um, we cover so much. The Coriolis effect, um, satellites, the moon, uh, just the Trappist stuff, endless stuff in the second hour. Anyhow, that does bring to a close the first hour of Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 59. Covering planets and our world and the inconsistencies with things we can absolutely know simply by challenging what we've been handed. Anyhow, I hope to see you over at crow777radio.com for the second hour, which is posted for members. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> 